Morning, church. It is good to be with you on this warm summer weekend. I hope that you have been enjoying the sunshine um, and enjoying just being out in God's creation. Um, We had a good day yesterday doing just that. Um, You will also notice that we added extra fans this week. So, you know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Peg's like, thank you. I'm really happy about that. Oh, Okay, so if you've ever spent any time around me in any kind of even somewhat informal capacity, you know that life is a musical. Um, when you are with me, I am prone to break into song about things. My children and my wife will also attest to this, that oftentimes life situationally just requires that we sing about whatever is currently going on. Um, example... Children start to lose their temper. I am prone to break into REM's It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I feel fine. Okay? Just the chorus, though, because I can't remember any of the rest of the song. Um, But it's more than just breaking into a musical. Like It's also adapting the lyrics on the fly. And if some of you were here this morning early enough during worship practice, you saw us doing just that. Absolutely, and sometimes it's really good, sometimes you're like, man, that was really funny, sometimes, especially if you're Susan, you want to rush the stage, Um, because it was about her, so sorry, Susan, we'll just publicly confess and apologize this morning about that, Um, but as I was prepping for the sermon this week, I was transported back to my time as an intern in Aurora, Colorado, and one of the best making up lyric moments of my life which was a youth event in which we were challenged as different youth groups to come up with lyrics to church hymns that envisioned what was actually going on in the church as we saw it, rather than what the hymns said. So, for example, my group took the, the song, Are You Sowing the Seeds of the Kingdom?, right? Are you sowing the seeds of the kingdom, brother? Okay, well, we just kind of changed things around a little bit, and instead of, are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, comma, brother, it was, are you sowing the seed of the king, comma, dumb, brother? And it was a song about self-righteousness and not loving each other and just generally being jerks in church, okay? Like, very creative, very beautiful, also quite irreverent, I am sure, in a way, but it was really, really good. But that does not compare to Sean Burroughs and the Boulder Valley Youth Group. Because Sean came up with an instant classic where he and his group took the words to I surrender all and changed it to I surrender some. And I wish I had gotten all the lyrics. I wish I wish I had gotten him to write it down. It was pure genius, okay? Because you know how I Surrender All goes, right? You've got the, the women singing I Surrender All, and then the guys are like, and so we had this beautiful chorus of, I surrender some, 85% I give, I surrender, if it's convenient for me, if it doesn't cost me too much, I'll surrender some. We were crying, we were laughing so hard. There was also one about humbleness and humility, but I'll save that for another sermon. Like, it was just as good, okay? Something involving take your child and name it after me, okay? It was really good. Anyway. But see, as I'm thinking about this, as I'm thinking about the sermon this week, and I'm thinking about this very, very difficult passage that we're working, these difficult passages that we're working with in Mark 11 and 12. 
and this, this time of Jesus in the temple and these questions of fruitfulness and barrenness and the question of, 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 of the expectations that the, the people that think that they understand how this is supposed to work and Jesus, the Son of God, coming into their midst and changing all of their expectations. At the heart of this fruitfulness and barrenness discussion in Mark is another discussion or more specifically a question that has to be answered and it's a question of who is in charge of the temple of God now. Especially, and I think this is a very, very pertinent question for us now as we, as we think of it in these terms, quoting Chris Seidman, God does not dwell in temples of wood and stone anymore. Now God has chosen to dwell in temples of flesh and bone. Who's in charge of the temple of God now? Who gets to make decisions about the purpose and the function of the spiritual lives of the children of God? It's an authority question. And, and the question that has to be answered, and, and hopefully the question that we're going to answer here, is that, is that one, we need to change the question of who's in charge to a better question. Who am I in charge for? If God has given me this life, if God has given me this body, if God has given me this as a temple, okay, as if we really are mobile temples of Almighty God, moving around, living in such a way that we are receptacles of his power, and he's given that to me, what am I in charge for? Who am I in charge for? Okay, if, if, if we, how we answer that who is in charge question is going to have a large impact on whether we pursue a life like we talked last week of actual fruitfulness or a life that pursues outward appearance to cover over inward barrenness. Those two are not the same things, right? We talked about that last week, but now we're going to get to the authority question underneath it. We're going to go to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27, and we're going to read through Mark 12, 12, if you've got your Bibles Go ahead and follow along, or your app, or whatever. Follow along with me. Starting in verse 27, we, we read this last week, and we're going to kind of pick back up into this theme. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, for they feared the people around them, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things then. He then began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him most shamefully. And so the owner sent another, and that one they killed. The owner sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a beloved son. And the owner sent him last of all, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But then the tenants said to one another, Look, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took the son, and they killed him, and they threw him out the outside of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then the leaders looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. And so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. When was the last time you had your motives or your actions questioned? Okay, somebody in their mind just said today. Okay, I, I'm, I'm sure of it. Okay, it happens to me all the time. The way you made a decision, the way that you use resources or your money, something that you said or you did or you posted on social media, anything. How did it feel? How did you react? I don't know, maybe you're just fine with this, but if you're anything like me, I mean, generally we don't do well with having our actions or our motives questioned, but we, we enjoy it even less when it's from somebody in the, that's an outside source rather than it's from somebody we trust. If my wife gen- gently comes to me and says, dear, have you considered? I'm going to take that a whole lot better than somebody, you know, like sending me an email going, you're wrong because, okay, right? And, and the more relationship there is, the more open uh, invitation there is to, to have a conversation that would examine action and thought and motivation. And so... With that in mind, I think we can have at least a little bit of sympathy for these leaders of the temple when Jesus shows up and starts driving the money changers out and doing all these things that he's doing. Last week, we focused on the fear of the leadership driving their interaction with Jesus out of that barrenness, that desire to cover up their barrenness. And that's all very true, but we also have a very straightforward authority challenge happening here. The temple leaders have been in the hierarchical leadership for generations, all the way back to Aaron and his sons at Sinai. Okay, this is not a new institution. And, of course, this has not been without problems. There have been many, many leaders that have not been worthy, that have been judged by God to be not worthy. There have been many, there's been lots of of political infighting even in that. And more recently, around the time of Jesus... Infighting's created a lot of divisions as well as having to capitulate to the outside forces. About 40 years before Jesus' crucifixion, the Romans actually deposed and exiled the high priest Archelaus for basically lack of good management, okay? Not being able to balance the various powers that be around and in the temple worship, okay? Basically, you couldn't keep the rebellions down and keep everybody, like, calm enough. So they went, never mind, we're getting rid of you and we'll get get somebody in who can. Now, here comes Jesus, this country preacher from out in the sticks, from an outside movement. Jesus would have been associated with the Pharisees in the popular mindset of those days. Okay, and they were a group. They, were, they would consider themselves a populist movement. Their, one of their major platforms would have included criticism of the ruling class of the temple. That is why they focused on the keeping of the law so much. Because they said, hey, the, the practices of the temple have become corrupted. But the law is incorruptible. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, no. The motive with which you practice the law can become just as corrupted as the motives with which you make sacrifices. This is why he has so many, this is why he has so many like, interactions with the Pharisees is because he's so much like them 
except he questions their motivation. The reason that you follow the law, the reason that you give a tenth of your mint and your spices and all these little things, why? What's behind that? Is it actually surrender to God or is it self-justification? What's driving you? Okay? But, but they would have seen him as, as somebody who's coming from the Pharisees, an outside group, and he just comes in the table, into the temple, starts flipping things over and making indictments with the authority of a rabbi, actually with way more authority than any rabbi they've seen in a long time. Okay? It makes a little bit of sense for them to ask this question. Who gave you the right to come in here and start doing all this? Who gave you the right to come in here and start changing all this stuff up? And in their minds, there's only two answers for Jesus to give them. Okay? First, I am doing this under my own. I don't need anybody else's authority. I'm doing it under my own authority. Which would be weird. Okay? Imagine somebody coming into us today and saying, all right, everything that you're doing, you need to stop and you need to change it. And we're like, why? Because I said so. We're like, there's the door. Have fun, see ya. There's another church down the road you can go bless. You know, I, I mean, that sounds rude, but we would, we would, we would say, we would, it is rude. Never mind. What am I saying? It's totally rude. Okay, we would be, we're a family. We'd be more loving than that. Okay, but, it, but, but realistically... That would be strange, and he would lose the support of the people if he decided to do that, right? But let's talk about the other side. He says, I that. Now, you and I today, we would put that in the same camp as nobody gave me any authority. I have it by my own, and I told you to do that. We'd be like, hi, door. Okay, it means something really different there. It means something very different if he comes and says, I, because then all of a sudden he is starting to claim divine authority in the middle of the temple. So now he has become a divisive movement. He has become an imbalance of power. And they would have every right to move on making an informal arrest and inquiry in order to do what the Romans are telling them to do. So, I mean, again, this is all out of selfish motivation, right? Keeping the balance in the temple is for their own good, not for the glorification of God. But you can understand, they would actually have a reason to go do this. So they pose this question, hoping to trap Jesus. By what right do you do this? Seems like there's no good answer. Now, Jesus doesn't avoid the question. He's not dodging, okay? What he's doing is he's actually being a rabbi. He responds the way a rabbi should. He responds with another question that clarifies the discussion from his end. He says, okay, you want to talk about authority? Cool, let's talk about authority. Let's start with John. Let's talk about his message of repentance and his baptism. But there's a deeper question underneath that. There is the question of how one recognizes and responds to the authority of God. I mean, yeah, it effectively springs the trap back on the temple leaders because it puts them in the no-win situation that they were hoping to put Jesus in. But it's not just a dodge. Jesus is making a serious theological statement to them when he says, John the Baptist's baptism, was it from men or was it from heaven? Answer me. Would you recognize the authority of God if it was standing in front of you? And how would you respond to its challenge? Now, 
they are not of the right heart to hear Jesus. They were not of the right heart to hear John. And, they, and, and, and their thought is simply themselves and how to maintain their own grip on the situation. And so for, the be- for them, the best answer is to say, we don't know. And Jesus responds, then neither will I tell you. Now that exchange is actually really important for you and me, but we're going to shelve that for a second and we'll come back to it later. Okay? But looking at it, it seems like we're at an impasse here. They won't answer. Jesus won't answer. We've kind of had this little sparring debate thing and we haven't really gotten anywhere. But then Jesus does answer. And he does it by telling a parable that is different than any other parable in the Gospels. Okay? When I read this to you, what were some of the most striking things about this parable of the vineyard to you, especially after Carolyn reading from Isaiah 5? Go ahead, this can be an interactive sermon. What were some of the, what were some of the things that really stuck out to you? It starts the exact same way. It's using the same language, right? They totally would. Absolutely. And, that, and, and so, so, so one, it is grounded in prophecy that is authoritative, and two, it's familiar. Now, this is very interesting because if you go back to Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the sower or the four dirts or whatever it is you want to call it. And nobody understands what's going on. And the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, why are you doing this vague, why are you doing story time? I don't understand. And Jesus says, that's, that's the point is I'm going to explain what's going on to you because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are being given to you, but not just to anybody. The people that have ears and hearts to hear what I'm saying, they will hear it. The people that don't, they won't. And that's how the parables go, right? Like there's, there's, there's a layer of kind of surface and then there's a deeper meaning. This parable is not like those parables at all. It is exceptionally straightforward. It is blunt even. And there is no confusion about why Jesus is saying it. And there is no confusion about who he is saying it to either. Now, looking at some differences. In Isaiah 5, the problem is a fruitless vine. Despite the care of the owner, when I went to look for fruit, it wasn't there. Jesus points to a different but related direction, okay? If the vine is fruitless, it may not just be its own failure to grow. The ones in charge of stewarding the vine may be guilty of mismanagement as well, taking for themselves what rightly, rightfully belongs to the owner, usurping his claim to the fruit that is there. Compromised authority leads to a lack of fruit. A lack of fruitfulness. Because even if the fruit is growing, it isn't being used well and it isn't being used rightly. A barrenness of good governance in our lives leads to a barrenness of life itself. And here's the thing. You can always kick it up and say like, well, you know, the elders. Well, you know, the preacher. Well, you know, the whatever. Okay? When you talk about good governance. But let's just be really honest about something. The Bible is super clear that when we have the when we have accepted Christ into our lives, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. God has given us everything we need for good governance of our lives. He has given us his very self. 
to govern us. And so if we're having lack of good governance that leads to lack of fruitfulness, it's, it's not something you can really kick to somebody else at the end of the day. We have to look at ourselves. Now this parable continues to unfold in a series of moves. The owner sends a messenger to ask for fruit, and they're, beat it, they're beaten and they're treated shamefully. So the owner sends another and another and another, and these are the prophets of God. They are sent to his children with the same message over and over. I, I don't know if we realize it because there's, there's a span of history, but you have to realize John the Baptist's message and his baptism, they were not anything new. They really weren't. It was the same message that had been sent over and over and over. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And the result is the same. Some scholars even think that when Jesus talks about the messenger that is struck in the head and treated most shamefully, he's actually referring to John. Because John gets struck in the head, right? Rejected shamefully by the leaders of the day and beheaded by the rulers of the day. And, you know, I just think about this. Being a prophet was not a very exciting calling. But, I mean, it's less exciting if you read it in this context. I mean, imagine being, imagine this. Imagine being like guy number five. Well, there went another one. At least they beat him this time and didn't kill him. Frank, you're up. You know, it's not very exciting, I'd have to say, right? And we were reading this as a staff, and we were so struck by God's faithfulness in this story, even even in the midst of taking, I mean, like his faithfulness to people that don't deserve it. And how he would put people that were righteous in harm's way for the sake of people that don't deserve it. And just how, how, how strange that is, how loving that is, and how sometimes we don't get it. I, I loved Monique's response to the story. I'm just really glad God is more gracious than me because I think after the first guy was beaten up, I would have just sent the army in, man. And all she was doing was saying what we were all thinking, okay? I mean, like, let's just be honest. Most of our exchanges where Monique says something like that is she's just saying what we're all thinking. And I love that about her. Okay. But as we were, as we were doing this, as we were working on this in our Lectio Divina time, we were so just taken in awe of how patient God is to just keep pursuing us. How beautiful he is to just keep going after us in our rebellion, and not throwing in the towel and sending the host of heaven to clean house on us. You know what I mean? It is lovely and it is humbling to consider that in this story. Now finally, the owner sends his beloved son. And that phrase is not random. Okay, both of the other times that it's used in Mark, it is from the very lips of God. It's Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he tacks on a transfiguration, listen to him. Moses, the sum of the law, Elijah, the sum of the prophets are there, and so is Jesus. And God basically says, if you had the choice of one of those to listen to, listen to him. He is the one in whom God delights, and he is the one in whom the authority of the Father rests completely. But it also means something else. Beloved picked apart as a Hebrew idiom means the fullness of love rests on this one. In essence, it also means only son, the son. 
because the full measure of God's love and God's power rests on him. Jesus could not be much clearer if he tried. Messiah is the one who will be called beloved son, and the fullness of God's delight and power will rest on him. It is all over the place in the prophets, okay? Jesus, and everybody in the room knows it. Jesus just made a messianic claim right in the middle of the temple. Boom! Right in the middle of the parable. Finally, the owner had a beloved son. And he said, I'll send them because surely they'll respect my son. But they didn't. Would you recognize the authority of God if it was standing in front of you? And how would you respond to it when it challenges your made-up authority and calls you to repentance and fruitfulness? And Jesus has already telegraphed their ending, right? The tenants go do something that seems just wacky to us. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. And then the owner does what we think that he should have done after the first guy. He brings in the army and he slaughters the wicked tenants and he installs stewards that will let him be the authority that he is over the vineyard. Now, the story gets even wackier and more ironic when we consider the outcome of the parable. The religious leaders hear the parable. They identify Jesus as the agent of the owner. They identify his messianic claim to be the heir. They identify themselves as the wicked tenants that are going to be usurped and destroyed because they kill the heir. And what do they do? They go off and start making plans to kill the heir so that they can keep their control over the temple. So they can keep control over... I mean, they, they literally just heard him say what they were going to do and what God was going to do in response, and they go and they do it anyway. And we're like, that's so dumb. What? Like, what are you thinking? That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Until we consider that this is the position of humanity from the very beginning and even to today. It's, it's really dumb when I'm pointing at somebody else. It's really relevant when I'm pointing it at me. If we can silence or we can do away with God, then we can become God over our lives. I mean, that, that story, we've been trying to do that ever since the garden, ever since Cain put Abel in the dirt in order to silence the voices of his failure to give God authority and please him. All the way up into today. The vineyard story is our story. It is not just a parable that's been directed to a certain people of group in temple leadership 2,000 years ago. It is my story. It is our story. It is the story of why when confronted with a challenge to my made-up authority, this idea that I'm in charge of my life and I can do whatever I want... I am prone to respond negatively rather than positively to his urgings when the Holy Spirit tries to convict me. I am more prone to say, I'm going to silence this. I am going to ignore it. I am going to rationalize it. I'm going to do whatever I can rather than accept it and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's what I do, man. It's what we do. My ego gets in a twist. And I move to withdraw, or I move to dominate, or to protect myself, or to silence the opposition so I can keep living life like I want to. 
You know what? I mean, you don't have to look very far to see this, not just in a personal sense, but in a widespread sense. It is why there are all these scandals coming up in churches, Catholic, Protestant, otherwise. Because we have failed to protect the people who are powerless in our midst rather than, we, rather than exposing and expelling those who prey on them and truly making our churches a safe place where the powerless are lifted up and made safe. It is why the richest nation on the earth, of which I am a citizen, so I am at least partially complicit in this when I say this. I am not pointing fingers across the border. I'm pointing fingers at me. It is why the richest nation on the earth is hell-bent on turning away refugees, conducting house raids for immigrant and custom reform and enforcement, and is still trying to build a wall at the border. Why is that happening? Let me tell you why that's happening. The real reason that is happening is because we can't welcome the stranger as Jesus in our midst and be able to buy and afford all of the things that we want that our soul tells us will make our life meaningful. We can't do both of those at the same time. And so what we're doing is we're building a wall between the two masters that we're trying to serve so they don't keep crashing into each other and like stirring up our conscience and making us think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. That's what's going on there. That's not a physical wall we're building. It's a spiritual wall we're building. And that's not something that belongs to another nation or another people group or another, like, like no man, that, that belongs to us. That belongs to us. We would rather have a good and orderly looking temple that runs nice and looks nice and gives us the ability to still do whatever we want rather than let God come in and kick over some tables and mess some things up a bit and call us to a better way of living that actually glorifies him. I know I would. I know I would. We got a problem. God keeps sending messengers through the Holy Spirit. We either ignore them or disgrace them or rationalize them or silence them. But if we really want to pursue fruitfulness instead of barrenness, it starts with a question of authority. Complete authority. There really is not room in our hymn books for I surrender some. It just, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And this is not about big, wide, sweeping things either. I, I mean, I gave us some really big examples there, but this idea of surrender and giving God what is his, those are authority questions that are on the ground in the day-to-day of my life, in the little things. Because we tend to forget whose vineyard our church is, or our small group is, or our Bible study is, or our prayer group is, or our church building is. Whose vineyard is that? Whose vineyard is my career? Or, or my checkbook? Or my marriage? Or my family? Or my retirement plans? Or our entertainment choices? Or our free time? Or, our, you know, fill in the blank, right? You know where I'm driving with this. Anytime we find ourselves saying this, insert piece of life here, belongs to me, we need to realize that it sounds almost exactly like, come, let's kill the air and the inheritance will belong to us. It's the same thing. It's just dressed up a little nicer. And yet the kingdom of heaven still surprises us with grace and mercy. This is a difficult word. 
I warned you that it would be like last week, and it's still a difficult word. It hasn't gotten any easier, I know, okay? I have been so blessed, though, by some of you that have been willing to respond and wrestle with this word, who have called me up this week, who have sat down for coffee with me this week and said, I, what does this look like in my life? Man, I love that you are asking these questions. Okay, so be gracious with yourself, because if you're asking these questions, you're farther along than a lot of people are. But there's good news here for you today. There's good news here for us today, even in the middle of this very, very difficult passage of Scripture. And that is this. If the kingdom of heaven was built like any other kingdom that we know, when Jesus confronts us with the truth of of, of his authority and the question, who's in charge here, comes up, he would have every right to command me, Christ alone, out of my power, you kneel. His unequaled power could demand that we cry, amen, out of our frailty and our lack of power. But he doesn't do that. He does not come in and wield his authority the way we would like to wield that authority. By saying, silence, I'm in charge. What he does is he comes in and he changes us from servants to children of God. And he asks us to stop thinking like stewards doing what we want and start thinking like heirs of the kingdom. What if I did give you the inheritance, he says. What if I did give you the ability to be children of God with me? What would you do with it? Would you continue to do whatever you want? Or would you start doing something differently? Because you were my brother and my sister now, what would you do? He moves us from a question of who is in charge here to that better question, who am I in charge for? To you, the riches of the kingdom of heaven have been given. For what purpose? And Jesus in his grace keeps coming to us and posing the question again and again instead of forcing us to submit. And when we say, I don't know, Jesus, I don't know if you're worth it. I don't know. I don't know if you're talking to me. Maybe you're talking to somebody else. But I don't know if you're talking to me about this whole like complete surrender thing. I think you might just be talking to somebody else and I can get away with what I'm doing. He graciously says, neither then will I tell you. That's not condemning. That's actually very gracious on his part. Because he waits patiently for us to be willing to bend the knee out of love and devotion at his goodness rather than demanding it out of his power. As my wife is so prone to say to me and to remind me of how to be a good dad, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It is his sacrifice of surrender that leads us to surrender. Hear the word of the Lord this week. Let it stir up your soul and your spirit. Let it bring you to love and fruitfulness. Let it bring you to a surrender that allows his graciousness to be made full in you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.